you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. Studios. Do you remember all the streets that run north and south in K-Town? Western, Oxford, Oxford. Oxford. Serrano. Oh yeah, or, Serrano. Uh-huh. And then Hobart, Hobart Harvard, Harvard, Kingsley, Kingsley Ardmore, Ardmore, Normandy. Nor- Normandy, Irolo, kind of like in between. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And then Sarah, Randy, and I are driving through K-Town on our way to get food. Being together in the car like this, it reminds me of our high school days when we would pack into Randy's tiny Hyundai Tiburon and drive to get boba while listening to our burned CDs. A lot has changed since then. For one, none of us live in K-Town anymore. After moving, do you find yourself coming to Koreatown still as, you know, often or? Yeah, I come like once a week. I come on Saturdays because I have acupuncture in the morning. After college, Randy moved to San Francisco. And during the pandemic, I moved up to the Bay Area, too. And Sarah? Sarah, you should move to... Oh, wait, you moved to Azusa. It's cleaner, right? Oh, way cleaner. And it's just like a bunch of seven-year-olds in my community. (laughs) Seven-year-olds. Seventy. Oh, Oh. seventy. That's really funny. It was just a bunch of seven-year-olds. It's weird to think that none of us live here anymore. Every time I visit, I see new buildings, a new condo here, a new apartment there. All these places that weren't there when we were kids. But some of the old spots are still around. And we can't help but point them out as we pass by. All these places that marked our childhoods. So I learned how to play piano at this place right here. Oh. And then... So this street um, is where they do that, like, have chantal, the like, oh, yeah, grass yeah. area. This is where they used to play the World Cup. World Cup. When I was younger, all I wanted to do was leave Koreatown. Because for me, the neighborhood was sort of like K-pop, where it represented this part of me that I wanted to hide. The Korean part of my Korean-American identity. But now that I've started to look at K-pop differently, it makes me want to take another look at Koreatown, too. This is K-pop Dreaming. I'm Vivian Yoon. I feel like K-pop has put Koreatown on the map for a lot of people who might not have known about the neighborhood otherwise. Which makes sense, because historically, K-Town has been the landing pad for K-pop in the U.S. Ever since I was a kid, the restaurants and stores here played K-pop over the speakers and showed K-pop music videos on TV. The music was inescapable. And from the very beginning... All kinds of K-pop artists and groups have made a point of spending time in L.A. People like Isuman, YG, JYP, even Sotechi. They all came to the city to experience the music and culture here for themselves. And now, Koreatown is full of K-pop fans looking to experience some of that connection for themselves. So I want to visit some of these places where K-pop and K-Town intersect 
to see what they reveal about the history of the neighborhood and the music. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events. Should we head to Dragon Boba? The first place we're visiting is a boba shop on 6th and Western called Dragon Boba. I remember when the place first opened years ago. Back then, it was a coffee shop, and the splashy new building stood out from the rest of the neighborhood because it felt so modern. With an open floor plan and high ceilings, and the walls that bordered the sidewalk were cut out so that people could sip coffee and look out into the street. And you could tell the interior had been carefully designed in that trendy Instagram kind of way too. Like the walls had bright pink neon signs and decor that screamed, take a picture, tag us. Eventually the cafe turned into a boba shop and more trendy spots sprung up on the same block, like a vegan burger joint and a weed dispensary. There's also a small pink ice cream shop right next door, which always kind of hurts to see because it replaced the boba shop that my friends and I used to hang out at years ago. I love boba. But with all these places, it's clear that they're catering to a younger, hipper demographic. Especially because right now, Dragon Boba is hosting a K-pop fan event. Oh, wow. It's decorated inside. Um, There are little, like, craft tables set up. There is a happy birthday, like, Uh, photo booth wall. Colorful stringers everywhere. The event is a birthday party for Bam Bam, one of the members of a K-pop group called GOT7. Oh, this part. This is Bam Bam. And... This is Maureen Castillo, the event organizer. She is a serious K-pop fan, and throwing GOT7 fan events is kind of her specialty. Every GOT7 event, you can imagine birthdays, like anniversaries, everything. To be clear, Bam Bam is not going to make an appearance at this event, and no one expects him to. This is more like a cute birthday-themed flea market where vendors come and set up tables with handcrafted K-pop merch for fans to buy. And Maureen and her team, they've created all kinds of unofficial Bam Bam merch, like tote bags and photo cards. But their most prized item, the thing that's drawing people to come to the event... Cup sleeve event for an artist um, named Bam Bam. This is 13-year-old Allison Lopez. She's here with her older sister, who's also a K-pop fan. So how did you get into K-pop or BTS? Uh, it was around 2017, 2018. 
and I was on my mom's phone and I guess a random video of BTS and I started liking it. Well, it's so nice that your sister will bring you to places like this. Yeah. What would, would you do if she didn't drive you? Uh, I'll probably beg my parents. <laughs> Allison and her sister live a few miles away. And the reason they're here at Dragon Boba is to get something called a cup sleeve. Cup sleeves are exactly what they sound like. Paper or cardboard sleeves that slip onto boba cups. And the thing that makes them special is that they're designed to feature certain K-pop groups or members. And the event we're at today, it's actually called a cup sleeve event. And there are a bunch of cup sleeve events organized by fans all across the country. Today, Marine's team is rolling out Bam Bam-themed cup sleeves that they've designed themselves. Can I get um, the strawberry Yakult with boba? So then now we wait here to get our boba, and then we go to the station down there to get our cup sleeve. After they get their bobas and their cup sleeves, which is bright yellow and purple and has Bam Bam's face on it, the sisters head to one of the vendor tables to look at merch. Keychains, as well as this bundle for $5. We have this... Uh, Maureen, the event organizer, walks up to us. In the back patio, there's like six more vendors. Oh, and they have, they, I think they have the lucky draw there too. For oh, the oh, okay. go check them out. We follow her through the cafe and wind up in a totally new space. So Maureen just led us through the back of the cafe and we wound up in like a pocha, like bar kind of place. I didn't know this when we first walked in, but behind Dragon Boba, there's an outdoor restaurant area themed like a Korean street stall. There are metal stools and newspapers plastered on the walls. And we have a bunch of vendors selling all kinds of K-pop merch. This looks pretty amazing. It's like a hidden marketplace, almost like in a sci-fi movie. I look around at the tables, strike up conversations with some of the vendors. Can you tell us your full name and what you are doing? Um, my name is Candice, and then um, I, I'm a BT- I mainly sell BTS merch. So, I so all the vendors here are K-pop fans, which is fascinating to me because it basically means this entire event is K-pop fans selling to and buying from other K-pop fans. Even the cup sleeves that this entire day is centered around, those are fan-made too, by Maureen and her team. And I'm realizing there is a whole K-pop fan economy happening here in Koreatown that I didn't know existed. And this is what Dragon Boba represents for me how K-pop is leading to new connections between fans and the neighborhood. The next spot on our list is a place called Koreatown Galleria. So Galleria is this multi-story mall on Olympic and Western that opened in 2001 on the site of a former strip mall. And I actually remember the construction of Koreatown Galleria. Because back then, I was part of this after-school program that met in a church across the street. And from my classroom on the second floor, I could see the dirt lot where the strip mall used to be. And every few months, a carnival would come up and set up in that empty lot. Then the carnival stopped showing up as construction started. And from that window, I watched the Galleria get built, day by day. I didn't know it at the time, but when the Galleria went up, it was seen as a symbol that signified a changing K-Town, as investments started pouring into the neighborhood in the late 90s. And to me, Galleria represents K-Town's rebirth in the 2000s, trying to become bigger and better. 
So Koreatown Galleria is this multi-level indoor mall. It has a grocery store, clothing shops, food court, parking garage. But there is one store here in particular that I want to talk about. A music store on the third floor called Choice Music. Tell her, tell her how it was in the beginning, bro. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is Stephen and Philip Sa, the two brothers who own Choice Music. Their family took over the store in 2006. And when they did, the place primarily sold American music. So the store was originally mostly American pop music, like Elvis, Michael Jackson, et cetera, et cetera, Whitney Houston. And um, that was predominantly the entire store. It was like 80% American artists and then 20% Korean artists. The brothers said their clientele consisted mostly of older Korean people who were looking for CDs and tapes by American music artists. And the store itself felt kind of old, too. At the time, we had carpet. It was like this green carpet. And we had like a little office space. So it was a really cramped little... I don't want to use the word dingy, but it was pretty like dingy with like the lights were kind of dim and it was just kind of, it was way different back then. The brothers said for the first few years, business was slow. But as time went on, younger people started coming to the store looking for a different kind of music. My dad, he started to notice like, hey, so kids are coming to look for Dongbangchinggi or, uh, you know, Super Junior, Big Bang, Girls' Generation. Brown Eye Girls, 2 p.m., 2 a.m. So this was in the late 2000s and early 2010s, when second-generation K-pop groups were steadily gaining fans in the U.S. And Steven and Philip's dad, he started noticing the growing number of fans. So he started, like, catching on, and then slowly the store, if it was like 80%, 20%, it started to level out. To like 60, 40, 50, 50, and then it just completely at one point just we just decided like to switch. Were you surprised when um, it slowly started shifting? Yes, because it, the demographic that was asking for it was just really interesting. Even my dad made the comment, like, hey, there's a lot of international fans that are starting to like look for this stuff now. And then he did have like a proud reaction to it, like, oh, you know, like they're looking for Korean stuff and like. It's not even our people that are looking for it. You know, it's become more widespread. This is something that other store owners at Galleria have said, too, that more non-Korean and international customers started shopping at the mall and eating at the food court and going to the grocery store downstairs. Then, from 2015 onward, the presence of non-Korean K-pop fans at Galleria became even more pronounced as third-generation groups like BTS, EXO, TWICE, and Blackpink took off in America. And in response, Choice Music went all in on K-pop. Not long afterwards, Steven took over running the business. And then, Philip joined in. The brothers said that, at first, they had a tough time running the store because their customers knew so much about K-pop. It was definitely a learning curve for me. Even if I knew what K-pop, like, what this group was or who they were, like, definitely tip of the iceberg for me. I had to learn a lot. It's like... They're so much more knowledgeable in certain senses than we are. Sometimes, like, you know, when they're talking to even to us about it, it's like they're speaking like a foreign language. You know, we, we would have to, like, sometimes Google it because it's like this undebuted group or something. The brothers tried to learn everything about K-pop to keep up with the customers. The groups, the artists, the way companies rolled out albums and merch. Like, all right, so, like, for this specific version, there's, like, 
for this specific album, there's four different versions, and within these versions, it's different concepts, and within all of these things, and like light sticks were. Eventually, they figured it out, and the store did really well. So well that they were able to renovate and open a second location in the same mall, directly across from their first location. Now, Choice Music looks like a really elevated, modern K-pop store. And their second location has a ton of space so they can host events and giveaways. When I first spoke to Steven and Philip, I was kind of surprised. Because the second I met them, they felt so familiar. It was like I already knew them. Even though they're a few years older than me, they have that second-generation Korean-American feel. Like, we hung out at the same places in Koreatown when we were kids. They went to a Korean church growing up. And we had a lot of similar experiences as children of Korean immigrants, belonging to the same community. Even the way they took over their family business, that reminded me of the cafe I ran in Koreatown, which was actually my mom's place that I took over after college. What's up, guys? How you guys doing? Choice Game, what's good? We out here. It reminds me of the path that a lot of second-generation kids take, inheriting certain things from your family, then breaking off to make your own way. The final spot on our list? Music Plaza, the first Korean music store in Los Angeles. So Music Plaza was established in 1992 inside a mall called Koreatown Plaza. I passed by the store a lot when I was a kid. It was in a huge space on the third floor of the mall and was kind of hard to miss. But I don't have any memories of actually going inside. I remember my mom shopping there when I was in junior high, but by then I was an aspiring emo kid and refused to go into the store. Getting caught in a K-pop store was my worst nightmare. So I just hovered outside the store windows as my mom browsed the aisles, looking for CDs by her favorite Korean ballad singers. But Music Plaza was the only Korean music store I knew about. And when it opened in the early 90s, it was one of the few ways that people in K-Town could get their hands on Korean music. Well, no, there were several stores. Uh, the CD stores and music stores, they sell books and CDs together. I am the one who's selling music myself. This is Eric Chan, the owner of Music Plaza. Eric says when he first opened his store, the popular Korean music at the time was... Slow music of the Korean ballads, like maybe Shin Seung-un, you know about it, and maybe Sotteji just came out. Eric says even though Sotejian boys were extremely popular then, he had a tough time getting the group's music to his customers in K-Town. Well, it was kind of hard to get one of those his music because uh, uh, the, the shortage of supplies. <laughs> it was kind of hard to get his CDs from even Korea. Eric says he would ask exporters for more Hoteji albums because his customers were asking for them. But the demand was so high, even in Korea, that people weren't willing to ship the albums overseas. But Eric did his best to get the most popular albums into his stores in both CD and cassette tape form. And Music Plaza quickly became a fixture of the community. To the point where famous Korean musicians and artists would stop by the store when they visited LA. People like Shin Seung-hoon, Shin Seung-hoon a super famous Korean ballad singer, and Hyun Jin-young. Hyun Jin-young, one of the earliest dancers and singers who went to that nightclub in Seoul, Moon Night, that we talked about in a previous episode. 
He visited Eric's store. Growing up, I never thought twice about Music Plaza. It was just a place where my mom occasionally shopped for Korean music. But now, I see that it provided a crucial service in Koreatown, giving Korean immigrants and second-generation Korean Americans a way to access the music at a time when it was so limited. And Music Plaza is also really connected to Koreatown's history, because the store's very existence was a result of the L.A. uprising. We'll be right back after this break. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com slash sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Before Music Plaza, Eric owned a different music shop in South Central. I used to have a store uh, at the South Central LA and selling CDs and, you know, tapes. The store sold R&B and soul music. And it was there until April 1992, when the Rodney King verdict was announced and violence broke out in South Central. And Eric's store was burned to the ground. Eric says that after the uprising, he decided to move his shop to Koreatown because he saw a need there and wanted to start serving his own community. And a few months later, in August of 1992, he opened his store, Music Plaza. One thing I've learned throughout this series is how one song or one building can carry so much history. And in Koreatown, a lot of that history comes back to the uprising. The violence and destruction it experienced during that time was really traumatic for the community. Even newer buildings that were built in the 2000s and 2010s, it feels like a lot of those were part of a larger effort to distance the neighborhood from the events of the unrest. But there's something else that happened during the uprising too. The emergence of the Korean-American identity in Los Angeles. I think before 1992, it was easier to pretend that this was not a racial identity that this was just a quiet immigrant enclave. This is Ryan Lee Wong, an activist and author of a novel called Which Side Are You On? I wanted to talk to Ryan because we grew up in L.A. around the same time, and his book deals with the events of 92, and it grapples with big questions surrounding identity and race and the Korean-American community here in L.A. It forced this national spotlight on these people who had previously been completely ignored from the American story. And all of a sudden, people, you know, saw we were hyper-visible. The national spotlight Ryan is referring to, that was the media coverage of Koreatown during the uprising. So, yeah, I think for many Korean Americans, this moment was an awakening, um, a rude one and a violent one. 
Um, but in a way, it, it's like this was a turning point in Korean American history. I had never thought of the uprising in this way. Growing up, I didn't know a lot of the details surrounding K-Town's experience during the unrest, and people never talked about it with me. Ryan had sort of a different experience because his mom is actually Jay Lee Wong, the activist and community organizer who worked as part of the Black Korean Alliance. We heard from her in a previous episode. And in writing his novel, Ryan asked his mom about her experience during that time to try and put together a picture of what happened in Koreatown in 1992 from the perspective of the Korean-American community in L.A. It's not really a happy history. Um, You could even say it's a shameful history for a lot of people involved. And of course, what shame does is it only increases the silence around something like that. And so even though like everyone in Los Angeles and like most Americans who are alive at the time have a strong image or idea of 1992, there's this like, hole in that image, which is um, the Korean-American experience. Talking with Ryan, it reminds me that the whole reason I wanted to look into K-pop was to see the connections between the music and Korean-Americans in L.A. Because, as I saw it, there was the Korean perspective on K-pop as a proud cultural export. And then there was the American perspective on K-pop as this new foreign music that was taking over. But there wasn't a lot about K-pop from the perspective of people like me, people who grew up with the music and felt connected to it, but at the same time, felt a bit of distance from it too. And this is sort of how I feel about Korean-American history in general. That's something that I have felt a lot personally is trying to reconcile The fact that sometimes it feels like there is no space for Asian American history in Asian history or American history. As an Asian American person, one of the prevailing narratives is that you're always less than, you know, you're less good of an Asian than like people in your home country and you're less good of an American than like people who have been here for generations or who can like pass into whiteness or whatever. And actually what is interesting to me about Asian American identity or Asian diaspora identity is that there's this amazing potential to actually put forward something new. There's this potential to actually offer a third way that gets us out of these stuck binaries. The moment Ryan said this about there being a third way, I felt like that's it. That's what I've been looking for my entire life. Growing up, I thought I had to choose a side. I could either be Korean or American, but not both. When I started working on this podcast, I had no idea that I would be delving so deep into Korean and Korean-American history. And I didn't realize that it would make me think so much about the way I thought about myself when I was younger. But there's something about learning the history of where you come from that inevitably leads to these kinds of questions. I asked Ryan how important he thinks it is that people know their own history. I am not exaggerating when I say I think that is everything. I mean, what are we without our histories? Even if your history is very painful, if you don't face that and on some level own and try to make something of that history, then who are we?
Working on this series and learning the history behind K-pop has changed the way I look at the music in Koreatown. And in the same way, it's changed the way I look at myself. Growing up, I was a huge tomboy. Throughout middle school and most of high school, I wore oversized shirts and sweaters, dickies, skater shoes. The first two CDs I ever bought with my own money were American rock albums. And that's how I wanted people to see me, as an American. But that's not who I actually was. Because I was the daughter of a Korean-American veteran and a South Korean woman who met one night near a U.S. military base in Seoul. I was the granddaughter of Koreans who grew up in a time of occupation and fled to America after a war split their country in half. I was someone who grew up in Koreatown, among other Koreans and Korean-Americans. And I was someone who spent years of my life pushing away the Korean side of my identity, afraid that it somehow made me less than. That's who I was and who I still am. And now that I can see how all of the big historical movements and forces that shaped K-pop's history are the same forces that shape my own family history and my experiences growing up in this city, I'm realizing I am so proud not to be Korean or American, but to be Korean-American, occupying that third space, telling the stories of my community. So I learned how to play piano at this place right here. Oh. And then... So this street um, is where they do that, like, have changtol, the like, oh, yeah, grass yeah. area. This is where they used to play the World Cup. World Cup. When I was younger, all I wanted to do was leave K-Town. But now, as I look out the window at all these places that hold so many memories and so much history, all I can think is, I'm home. Ready? Key change. K-Pop Dreaming is written and hosted by me, Vivian Yu. The show is a production of Elias Studios. Shayna Naomi Krokmal is our vice president of podcasts. Antonia Sedehido is the executive producer for Elias Studios. Catherine Mailhouse is the director of content development. Fiona Ng is the senior producer and show creator. Our producers are James Chow, Minju Park, and me, Vivian Yu. Sophia Polizakar is our editor. This episode is sound designed by James Chow. Korean research and translation help by Gloria O, oh, with fact-checking by Minju Park. Parker McDaniels is our mix engineer. Taylor Kaufman is our director. Original music by Stephen Tran. Jens Campbell and Sarah Burnett are our interns. Our website, elias.com, is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Elias Studios. The marketing team at Elias Studios created our branding. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Cosentino, and Leo G. Special thanks to Jacqueline Kim, Quincy Surismith, Sarah Wan, Randy Lee, Topher Ruth, and the Berkeley Advanced Media Studios. K-Pop Dreaming is a production of Elias Studios. 
Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. The Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.